0: Well, I you, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 20. We're finally here, right at the end of John's gospel resurrection account. Uh, we'll notice in the coming weeks that John has a great emphasis on not just Jesus' resurrection, but his ministry to people, particularly his disciples after his resurrection. But this morning, we're going to confine ourselves just to verses 1 through 10, really just the, the eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection. Before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it's our heart's delight to turn to one of your four Gospels and just read this account to have an eyewitness viewpoint on what took place that first Easter Lord's Day morning when death was conquered by our Lord Jesus Christ and hope is offered to the world. As we take a look at this passage, we pray that you would drive the truths deep into our hearts and that you would provide each of us what we need spiritually. You know what that is even better than we do Ourselves For Jesus' sake, amen. John chapter 20 at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes thus far the reading of god's word may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning beloved brothers and sisters at hope and everyone listening uh, this morning we're just going to walk through this account, basically verse by verse. And I want to begin by drawing your attention to verse one. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Jesus was put in this tomb on Friday night before sunset, whether that was six or seven o'clock somewhere around there. He had been in the tomb the first day, Friday, that's when he went in. In the tomb all day Saturday, and now we're at the third day, according to what Jesus prophesied, and as was demonstrated even in the life and ministry of Jonah in the whale. He or the great fish. Jesus is in the tomb this third day, and we're told this is the first day of the week when this happened. They don't mention this occurred on the third day after Jesus was crucified. The Gospel writers make it clear, and especially John here, that this is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. Sunday. This day was so significant that it actually became the day on which Christians gathered to worship the Lord. And if you read through the New Testament, we'll discover that this is actually called the Lord's Day. It's the day on which Jesus Christ rose again. And down to this very day, some 2,000 years later, we are still serving the Lord, worshiping together on the first day of the week as believers. So Mary Magdalene on this first day uh, was the first one to the tomb. Other gospel accounts record there was other women with her. Uh, The other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was there. And as Mary approaches the tomb, there is something we should note about her approach to it. She comes to the tomb. Remember where she was at just a few days earlier on Friday evening. Luke 23 records this in verse 55. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. That's Friday night. Matthew twenty-seven sixty. Joseph of Arimathea rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So Mary Magdalene saw Jesus' body laid in the tomb. She saw Joseph wrap Jesus' body up with linen and spices, and she saw exactly how they placed Jesus' body in the tomb. She was there. The Romans made sure Jesus was all the way dead, the soldiers verified it, and Mary is a witness not only to Jesus' death, but also to the fact that he was buried in that tomb. Watch the stone rolled away, case closed. Mary is an eyewitness of those things. And Mary and the other Mary could clearly see that Jesus was dead too. There was no horseplay, no trickery in their mind's eyes. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was still going to be in that tomb when they showed up there on that Sunday morning. Now, I want us to notice something. I tend to highlight this every year, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. But in the Mishnah, Rosh Hashanah, uh, chapter 1, I think, paragraph 8, I'm not sure how the Jews designate that. We read this, although in certain cases a woman's testimony is accepted, an example, to testify to the death of someone's husband. In the majority of cases, her testimony is not valid. That is how Jewish courts would receive women's testimony. Generally speaking, most of the time, not valid. And Mary Magdalene then is written as the first one to verify that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. Now she's been around Jesus for quite a while. Luke 8 tells us that The twelve were with Jesus, but also Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna was with Christ, ministering to him, Uh, Susanna, and many others who provided for them, Jesus and his disciples, out of their means. Mary had been uh, paramount in Jesus' earthly ministry, supporting him and the disciples. While the men were basically scared, hiding, sheepish, or at this point indifferent and really confused, The women, including Mary, were preparing spices, and they were coming out while it was still dark. It's like basically daybreak, and they were already in the midst of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And the men were nowhere to be found, but the women were first to the tomb. Now, I don't want to make too much of this other than to say this. Why would women be recorded as the first witnesses to the resurrection if their testimony and witness in a Jewish court, if they were ever put on the stand, did Jesus rise from the dead, would not be admissible or received? And if the predominance of world religions are founded by who? Men. Men with glowing accounts written about them. Why would... The gospel writers go out of their way. Why would the Holy Spirit go out of their way to make sure that we know that the first people to the tomb and the ones who were bold were women. And when the guys first found out about it, you recall what other gospel accounts said. It seemed to them an idle tale. They didn't believe it. Why would this be the case? Well, maybe to keep the disciples and all Christian men humble, right? Easter morning makes the men disciples look weak, fearful, skittish, and unbelieving and unsure, But maybe it's written, and this is indeed the case, because this is exactly what happened. Because this is just the way it unfolded. Christianity is not a religion. Uh, Christianity is a religion of the truth, historical truth, verifiable truth. It's not a portrayal of events as the world would like to see them. But it's a record of God's redemptive work in history as it actually happened. And what is fascinating is if this is the beginning of a world religion, you would expect it would fall flat on its face. It would get no traction. You could even charge the the Marys with tampering with the evidence, possibly. They could be charged with stealing the body. (laughs) And, And yet it takes off and it is all over the world, including here in Pella, Iowa in the year 2023 in Gentile country. How does this happen? It's the work of God it's just true. There's no way, no other way to explain it. This is what took place in real-time history. Now, it's still dark. The other gospel writers tell it was very early or right at dawn, the point being that the sun is just starting to come up on the horizon, or maybe at, let's say, six o'clock in the morning or so, maybe seven o'clock in the morning, and we're told that, verse 1, she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, how did this massive stone get rolled away? Joseph put it there, we're told. The Roman soldiers sealed it and guarded it. And we turn to Matthew 28, verse 2, and discover there was a big earthquake, and the angel rolled the stone back and sat on it. Now, the earthquake must have happened. Start When the, when the earthquake happened, it must have startled the Roman soldiers enough. But that's probably when they... Left, We don't know if they looked in that tomb to see it was empty. And then they ran to the chief priests and the scribes to report this along uh, to Pilate as well. But at this point, they are gone. They are on their way and they are out of there. So the Roman soldiers were not the ones responsible for opening the tomb. They would have made sure the tomb stayed closed. There wasn't any way they were going to roll back the stone on their own, these women. They couldn't. They were actually talking in other gospel accounts about how are we even going to get this rolled back. How was the stone rolled away? By an angel. Why was it rolled away, though? Some people like to think it's so that Jesus could get out. Well, the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could actually exit it. But we know from John 20, verse 26, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. When When the disciples were in hiding, they were Afraid for fear of the Jews, they had the doors locked. Jesus walked right through a locked door. His resurrection body can go through hard substances. It's a miracle. So it should come as no surprise to us that indeed Jesus has already gone out of the tomb by the time the stone is rolled away. The linen cloths wrapped around him are laying there, not in a heap and mess, but are laying there. And the head cloth is neatly folded. It should come as no surprise to us that when the angel rolled away the tomb, it was already empty. And the reason the tomb is rolled away is not so Jesus can get out, but so that we can get in. So that Mary and Peter and John and all the other witnesses can walk into that tomb and verify, hey, we were here, we saw it. Mary could say, I know they laid him there. He was there Friday night. And now he is indeed gone so the eyewitnesses can get in and see it. So Mary sees other gospel accounts, give her you know, walking in and taking a look. John doesn't record that, just records. She saw the tomb was open, the stone was rolled away, and then she ran, verse two, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now Mary just uses a general they. Whether in her mind it's the Romans or the Jewish religious leaders or some grave robbers, it's just they. Someone, someone other than us, they took away Jesus' body. Nobody was expecting resurrection, including Mary. Nobody who believed in Jesus was expecting a resurrection. Let me clarify that just, just a bit. The only people who actually spoke as if they believed a resurrection were possible, were Jesus' enemies. Matthew 28, verses 62 to 63. Let me just read those two verses. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, Jesus is in the tomb. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. There was They were clearly guarding against the stealing of Jesus' body. But they used the language of, hey, he said he's going to rise. So if anybody had any thoughts, hey, we know what he did with Lazarus, maybe he will pull this off for himself too. His enemies are talking about that, uh, Jesus' enemies are. But Jesus' disciples are not thinking resurrection, even though he told them very explicitly that he would be delivered over and rise on the third day. In fact, another testimony to the fact that nobody was expecting a resurrection is that the ladies, Luke 24, 1, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They're going to anoint a dead body. They're going to anoint a dead body. Joseph and Nicodemus did this quickly with about 75 pounds of spices. They're going to finish up the work. We're going to do even more. Nobody is going there expecting a risen Lord. And then verses 3 to 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They got the news. Mary's telling them this great gospel, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So they were both running. There was a sense of urgency. They heard about this incredible thing Jesus is risen, or he's not there. <laughs> and they need to go check this out. Now, John makes it clear that he beat Peter to the tomb. In fact, he references it three times in John 20. Verse 4, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Verse 6, then Peter came following him. And then verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. Now, if anyone knows about track and field, there's a start to a race, right? Coming out of the blocks, there's a middle section, then there's the close, the finish. And so just from an earthly standpoint, we would say, hey, Peter had been practicing his starts, got out on the blocks first, way ahead of John. John had a great middle of the race, but at the end, John stopped and Peter actually went into the tomb. Obviously, that's not the point of the passage. What is the point? Why are these details in there? It's just an eyewitness account who would make this stuff up. Why would John say, hey, I actually ran ahead of Peter and I got to the tomb first, and I just kind of peered in a little bit, and then Peter, when he came after me, because I was faster than he was for whatever reason, whether Peter pulled a muscle or wasn't in as great a shape or was just thinking about other things or just wanted to jog rather than sprint, who knows? But when Peter came, I was kind of standing here, and he just walked right in. Typical for Peter, right? Hey, I'm going to go in. He's a risk taker. Let's go do this. Walked right in. Eyewitness account. If you were not there, if this did not happen, you'd have trouble even figuring out how you'd make this stuff up. And you wouldn't necessarily want to say it because if someone could verify that indeed Peter beat John to the tomb, then the whole gospel would be proven wrong. But details like this are put in there so that it could be verified. You could ask maybe the ladies who were there or saw them on the way, yeah, who won the race? Peter was ahead of John, but then John passed him up verifiable information. So verses 5, 6 to 7, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. This is John, but he did not go in. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So John gets there first, didn't go in, first peered in, saw the linen cloths. Peter walks right in. And you can imagine the conversation, Peter telling John, John, you, you got to come further in here. Look at this. <laughs> the linen claws are there, and here's the head cloth. It's folded up separately from it. This is fascinating. This is unbelievable. And this tells us as the readers of this account that the body wouldn't have been stolen. Who would, if you were stealing a body, if you somehow rolled back the, tome, the, the, the stone that was sealed and that had Roman guards there, if you could roll back that stone without them waking up and no doubt somebody was unwatched, they were probably all watch because if this goes south, they're going to lose their necks. So they'd have taken every bit of caffeine and all the Red Bull they could do that was available in their day to make sure they stayed awake. But how would you even get in there? And if you did get in there without waking them up, who would take the time to unwrap all that linen and all those spices and fold the head cloth and then march calmly out of there with Jesus' body. Nobody would do that. The body wasn't stolen. Jesus was resurrected. As you read the eyewitness account, not just in John, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's interesting, the details. There's not just vagaries. There's details which, again, tell us that this is an eyewitness account. Look, the linens are here. The head cloth is over here. It's separated. It's not just in one big pile and heap. Why are we being told this? So that we can know, hey, indeed, they must have been there. It's like if you interview somebody who went to a live concert and somebody who just watched the concert on YouTube or online somewhere. As you ask them questions and talk to them about their experience of the same concert, but one person was there It'll be really easy after a while to start sorting through who actually was there. And if you don't believe someone's testimony, you can go verify it. The one who attended the concert, who was the eyewitness, they'll be like, hey, we saw them came out incredible songs. It was awesome. We were just out there praising the Lord. It smelled like popcorn. There was It was all over the floor. Somebody stepped on my foot. At one point, the music stopped. They didn't record that part. The guy singing had a little bit of snot coming out of his nose, right? I mean, just crazy details. Maybe he had a cold. But if you just watched it online on a video, you could speak in vagaries. But if you get too detailed, then someone could go to someone else you were there with or claim to be there and say, hey, is this true? We have these details, incredible detail, actually, that testifies to the fact that this is an eyewitness account. And if you don't believe it, go ask the people who were there. Go ask Peter, go ask Mary Magdalene, did this happen? Yes, it did. All right, then it must be true. And John in his epistle, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4, writes this, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Imagine if you're standing there, what would you write? Imagine if you heard the news from Mary Magdalene and you and Peter both heard it about the same time, maybe you're in different houses and you took off and you beat Peter there and Peter walked in the tomb, what would you write? Exactly what he's writing. Moved by the Holy Spirit, of course, but we would write these details. And then verse eight, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, this is fascinating, this little verse here. They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That hadn't clicked yet. Jesus hadn't said, receive the Holy Spirit, hadn't on the road to Emmaus unfolded things. Pentecost hadn't hit, obviously. So a lot of this stuff was muddled in their head and not clear. But John walks in and catch, he sees and he believed. Now we're not necessarily told, oh, he believed the scripture all of a sudden, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. What did he see first? He saw Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus had already told them about the resurrection. Why didn't he believe even uh, the Old Testament passages which point into the resurrection? Why didn't he believe Jesus' own words to the resurrection? It hadn't. The lights hadn't clicked on yet for him. But he does know one thing, even without the testimony of Scripture, I can stand here, John the Apostle, and say, Yep, I believe he's raised from the dead. I believe that this actually happened. And this is so often how things work, not just in the life of unbelievers, but also believers. We encounter difficulties, suffering, trials, things which explode our current worldview. We walk into them without warning, without any lens by which we can even view it and understand it. And we say, I don't know much, but I do understand that obviously Christians can suffer or obviously this can happen in the world and earthquakes can take out thousands of people and babies can be buried by their parents. I get that. And then we go back to the Bible and what do we see? That truth taught us so clearly that we couldn't have missed it if we had read it 10 times, but we've read it 20 times and we missed it. That this world's filled with suffering, etc. So John, not having got from the scriptures so far that Jesus was going to rise, sees Jesus resurrected, and eventually he'll come to see that all throughout the scriptures. That is so often how it works with us. God teaches us things in his word that we are, so to speak, blind to, we just don't see it, we read it, it just doesn't click with us yet, and all of a sudden we experience it. And then we go back to the Bible and say, how like how could I miss that? Of course that's the case. Some people need to strive a little while longer in their sin just to discover that they will never become good enough to be saved, only to turn to the Bible tomorrow or next week and discover that God has been making that clear ever since the beginning of time after Adam and Eve fell into sin. And that Jesus' son is the only way to be saved. So often the case that our worldview has to be exploded first. And then we come back to the Bible and we see the Bible has always taught this. Why didn't I see it before? Christians have that. It's part of our spiritual growth. Unbelievers have that so often. I can't explain the terrorist attacks on 9-11. I just buried a kid. I can't explain that. My worldview doesn't teach that. How am I supposed to look at that? I'm going through tremendous sorrow and suffering and difficulty. How do I process this? This isn't fair. And they go to the Bible for answers and discover, oh, this is what life is like in a fallen world. Praise God, Jesus came out of the grave to give us hope. My hope is that if there are any here who have not turned to Christ, trusting in his death and resurrection for eternal life, that you would not seek to trust in him after you die, for then it will have done you no good. The Bible does teach very clear that whoever believes in him will receive eternal life. So don't wait till after you've verified the fact that Jesus is the only Savior, but it's after you've died and the day of repentance is over. Verify that now. He is indeed the Savior, and I urge you to trust in him. I want to close with this for... Believers, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's Paul's negative explanation of the resurrection. If Jesus didn't come out of the grave, Christianity is a farce, fairly straightforward. Our faith is futile, it's empty, there's nothing in there, it's like a milk jug, but there's no milk in there, it's just a bunch of air, and we are still in our sins. But the whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 and The gospel writer is all recorded. Indeed, Jesus is raised, which means our faith is real. It's not futile. It's in something. Our faith is in a real Jesus Christ who in history actually paid for our sins on the cross, was buried, and on the third day, he bodily rose. And so our sins are dealt with too. Payment has been rendered, and we now have eternal life to look forward to if there's one thing that stands out about Christianity over against every other world religion, it's this. It's the record of God's redemptive works in history at a point in time verified by dozens and hundreds of witnesses that anybody could go talk to. And the resurrection is just that. God working in history to raise his son from the dead and put the entire world on notice. If I raise my son from the dead, then Acts 17.31, Paul's sermon, it tells the entire world that God's going to come in judgment someday and judge. And so where are you? What have you concluded about Jesus? Is he the resurrected Savior in whom alone is our hope? I hope that's what every one of us would say. Let's pray.